You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and one of the co-hosts of this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, an MSNBC legal analyst and former Watergate prosecutor, former general counsel of the Army, uh, author of, oh, because we're talking about books today, my new paperback edition has come out, um, The Watergate Girl. And I also wear message pins. And today's message pin is for Women's History Month, and it is um, an image of a woman, which seemed very appropriate for the book we're talking about today with Alicia Menendez, and also just for Women's History Month. For sure. So um, likability is something that impacts everyone, but it is judged differently from both men and women and weighted differently depending on your gender. Uh, We saw this illustrated in the 2016 and 2020 elections when candidates Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and others who are all exceptionally qualified, arguably more so than their male competitors, yet there was always one factor that loomed over them, but not over their male competitors, whether or not they were likable. And that one factor, likability, has been and continues to be a barrier facing women in politics and also importantly in the workforce and in life. Our guest today, Alicia Menendez, has written a book on the issue of likability called The Likability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are. The issue and Alicia's book are relevant for women spanning all generations, and I know you will enjoy and learn from this episode of Intergenerational Politics. You probably know Alicia from her uh, show every Saturday and Sunday on MSNBC, American Voices, covering breaking news and national issues. But Alicia is also the host of the Latina to Latina podcast, an interview series in which she talks to other remarkable Latinas about making it, faking it, and everything in between. Alicia has been dubbed Miss Millennial by The Washington Post, Journalism's New Gladiator by Elle, and Content Queen by Marie Claire Magazine. Having had the privilege of being Alicia's guest on her MSNBC show and seeing her success, I can attest that all of those titles are justified. In fact, they are true and accurate. Knowing the barriers that women face uh, and overcoming them and still trying to tear down those barriers, combined with how often women have to contemplate if they are likable or not, I'm looking forward to today's conversation with Alicia. Thank you so much for being here, Alicia. Um, you know, I came across your book at an event that Joyce Vance did, um, and Jill sent me the invitation. Um, and Joyce is one of uh, Jill's sisters-in-law, and she hosted you in talking about your book. And so when I first heard you talk about the topic, I was fascinated. So like Jill, um, I am also looking forward to this conversation um, so first, let's talk about the likability trap, and that's like a term that has a lot of layers to it. So to get started, can you give our audience an understanding of what you mean by that term? 
Absolutely. I am so excited to be here with you, Victor, and you, Jill, though a little Jill, a little nervous to be on the other side of this equation. I gotta <laughs> be honest with you, much more comfortable asking the questions. Um, you know, we socialize women and girls to care what other people think of them and to think of themselves in relation to other people. That's across cultures that we do that. I think in some ways that gives women a superpower. We're very aware of the impact that we have on other people. I think that empathy is a great thing. I think where it becomes a challenge is when women begin to modify their truest selves in order to appease other people. And so the trap, as you said, has lots of layers, Victor. I mean, I think it starts just with the internal costs that women pay for caring about what others think of them. That certainly is the way that I've experienced it. I'm a person who cares very much about being well-liked. As I started to get into my late 20s and 30s professionally, I started to realize that I was paying a cost for the degree (coughs) of care um, that I was both hemming myself in and that like I'd go to bed at night and run through every social interaction I'd had during the day and that that was time that could be better spent on a number of other things. What I learned as I began to research my book is that even women who don't care as much as I do or who aren't governed by likability, they too often feel that they pay a price for being so brazenly themselves, for not caring, because there is this expectation that women ought to care. I break down three traps, I'll go through them really quickly, which is there's this fundamental paradox, which is we tell women they can be warm or they can be competent, but they can't be both. The challenge is that we expect women to be warm, to be communal, but what we expect of leaders is competence and strength. So what that sets up women for is that when they act warm and communal, people see them, people like them, people don't see them as leaders. When they show up assertively, when they're clear about what they want and what they need, people may see them as leaders, but then they'll like them less. Um, A lot of women like myself, I'm going to guess like Jill, have been given both sets of feedback in different contexts, which shows you how subjective and context specific that is. There's also the success likability penalty, which is that the more successful a woman becomes, the less other people like her just because. I think this was popularized by Sheryl Sandberg in her TED Talk and in her book, I think what we've gotten a little wrong though in the way that we understand that is that we imagine that women make a one-time choice about whether they prefer to be an ambitious person or a likable person when really these are choices that women are making every single day. They begin from the first job a woman applies for to every time she asks for a reach assignment, every time she asks for a promotion, every time she asks for a bonus, every time she asks for a new title. All of those things, she is constantly negotiating these questions. And then the final piece of it to me is we're living in a moment largely driven by Silicon Valley where there's this call for authentic leadership, right? For people to show up and be vulnerable and be themselves and bring their whole selves to work. I love that you and I are both in hoodies. It says you know something about the moment. Um, But I think there's a question of who that really applies to and who is given the luxury of showing up fully as themselves. And that can mean a lot of things. I mean, I look at this through the lens of gender, but I think there are a lot of different layers that can be added on that. I think parental status, I think race, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, age. Like I think all of those things combine to, um, to create a scenario where who gets to fully show up as themselves is more complicated than Instagram memes would allow you to think it is. 
You know, I just want to talk about the opening of your book, and you talk about this before, but you start off with an admission that a lot of people can relate to, um, especially many women that you know you want people to like you. And so you talk about listening to um, one TED talk by um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who um, used Beyonce's song uh, "Fear uh, Flawless," uh, telling her audience that likability is quote bullshit. And um, as someone who cared about what others thought of you, that must have been a bit surprising. So what did you think of at that moment, given your prior? beliefs that, you know, you wanted people to like you and that you had this, you know, feeling that um, your sense of likability um, was unique compared to others. So Chimandi, incredible writer, and most people know her because part of her talk, one of her talks was sampled for that flawless track from Beyonce. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it made me wonder if I am like complete nonsense as a person that someone would say that the thing that I value myself on um, is complete nonsense. But it also forced me to think more deeply about why this was so important to me and also about whether or not likability was something that could be simply dismissed. So I originally wanted to write a book that was going to be like the eat, pray, love of likability, right? That I would like go on this personal epic journey and come out caring less. And what I learned is I don't know that you ever are in a world where likability just doesn't matter. Like it is a deeply, deeply human thing to surround ourselves with other people who share our interests, our likes, our wants, our way of seeing the world, people with whom we have any variety of commonalities. People like doing business with people they like, people like spending their time with people they like. What I became more concerned with is where likability becomes a cover for bias, where we use it to in order to soften or cover or say things that we know otherwise we shouldn't be saying, and where it really runs into who gets to be a leader and who doesn't. I just I don't think it's as simple as we want it to be to just dismiss likability out of hand. Uh, that, that's something that always intrigues me is just how much we care about um, likability and, and and that whole notion. And Brene Brown, who um, I've read a lot about, she talks about likability and how um, we always kind of like there's a sense that, you know, there's this new mindset of like, we don't care about what other people think of us, but we actually do. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on kind of how this book changed your kind of concept of likability and whether or not by the end of your book, you know, talking with your friends about the subject and writing this book, if that feeling still lingers within you or if you kind of develop this sense that um, I care about likability, but it just is like a different way that I care about it. Well, I care, still care deeply. So clearly my like, pray, uh, eat, pray, love uh, experiment went out the window. Um Here's what I think I did gain some clarity on, which is that my book is really looking at likability in the context of leadership and of work. And part of where I land is that most work requires some element of performance. Um, you know, I don't know that there are so many people who get to show up fully as their unedited, unfiltered, unvarnished self all of the time at work. I'm not even totally sure that that is how we want workplaces to be, right? I think we're saying we want people to feel comfortable. We want people to feel psychologically safe. I don't know that we need everyone living their full lives at work. But what that means to me as the person who works, you know, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week is that if in those hours, 
I am always for the rest of my life going to have to do some element of performance. And that performance could mean, you know, I'm a very introverted person. I actually like to spend a lot of time by myself and a lot of time in quiet. So just the act of going to an office requires a level of extroversion that for me is a bit of a performance. Um, well, then what happens with the rest of our lives? To me, it means I want all those other hours to be filled with people with whom I can be 100% myself all the time. People who see me, people who see the best in me, people who draw out the best in me, people who give me sort of the, the sense that when I leave them, I have more energy than I had before I was with them. I am inspired to go do things. And for me, that required an editing of some of my personal relationships, you know, people who I had been friends with for years, who I enjoy their company, um, maybe feel very fondly because we've gone through some shared life experiences together, but who I had to realize I was always performing a little too hard for. I wasn't really showing up as my myself, as I know myself to be, but I was sort of the version of Alicia that I am with them. And that um, I'm too old for that. Like, I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. And if I'm going to spend so many hours at work where this is necessary, then why would I spend any minute of the rest of my life doing that? So listening to you, Alicia, um, before I get to the questions I was planning to ask, you've made me think about a couple of things. One is, one of the advantages of age is that, for example, I will now talk to strangers in elevators. Because I, you know, it's like I think about if someone said to me, I really like your jacket, I'd feel happy. So why shouldn't I say to them, You look terrific today? Um, so there is some advantage to being your authentic self as you age. But um, I'm going to go back to two other things. One in college, where I read a book called um, Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And it really had an impact on me because when I was in college, I was very insecure, and I felt like I wasn't charismatic enough, that I would never get picked to be the leader of something, and that I had to put on an act. And at some point, you act it long enough that it actually does become you, and I'm comfortable in that skin now, even though deep down, I still think I'm pretty insecure. Um, but to the first thing you said about likability... I can give you an example. I was, when I switched careers to be on the business side at Motorola, I was working on a deal in Russia. And my translator said to me, you know, the Russians think you're really mean. And I can't tell you that hurt me so deeply because of course I wanted to be liked. And I almost burst into tears. I took a break and I went and from Russia, called my best friend in Chicago, interrupted her in the middle of a business meeting because her secretary could tell that I was crying and put me through to her, despite the fact that she was in a meeting. And I said, they think I'm mean. And she said, and what's wrong with that? You're doing business with them. You want them to think you're mean. You don't want them to think you're a pushover. And that really caused me to rethink what likability means in a workplace. But... Anyway, back to the questions I was planning to ask you, which uh, first Wait, but of let all, me say there, Jill, I think this yeah. brings me to something that stuck out from my research, which we you can quibble with, which is there was a study of women attorneys 
And they found that in some ways they run up against this less because theoretically a client or a managing partner or whomever wants them to go to the mat for their client, right? And so it's like that same assertiveness when it is put in the context of, is this going to get me the thing that I want? Is this going to deliver results? Is interpreted very differently. Every woman attorney I spoke with was like, I don't know about that. (laughs) No, I think that's right. And And I also think, for example, when I became general counsel of the army, I think my being accepted was in part because at that time I was still on the lawyer side and they, the generals all thought, well, she's a lawyer. She has a specific and different skill set that we don't have. And so that made them trust me more, but it doesn't eliminate my wanting them to like me. And so, yes, it it is acceptable. Um, Although early on when I was a partner at a law firm, and was evaluating associates, I could hear the men evaluating a woman for being uh, overly aggressive, whereas a man was in charge and assertive. That was good, but it was bad for a woman to do the same behavior. So one is a likable quality and one isn't. So even for lawyers, it is a problem. Um, But anyway, so, you know, as a fellow author, I'm always interested in how writers approach getting their books done and finding the right balance between your own experience and dealing with likability and having the book be a tool for other women and men to deconstruct the concept of likability. So how did you approach going beyond your own experience and emotional uh, feelings about it to getting the research done right? Great question. Um, One of the things I ran into very early, I don't know if you share this experience, is that I underestimated what is considered sharing and oversharing in the memoir genre. And it made me realize I am actually much more guarded than I think of myself as being, that the degree that I wanted to share at this point in my life and in my career was not what was going to be required. So in some ways, I found it incredibly liberating then to be able to interview a broad cross-section of women, find patterns and share their stories. Um, And so I was very intentional about making sure that I was hearing from a diverse cross-section of women. And I mean that in terms of different industries because different industries handles this question differently, different generations. I think, you know, one thing I ran into is women who were, no women learn to care more, right? Everyone learns to care less over time. But I also feel that if you are a woman who has been uber successful, especially if you are still in the game in which you made your name, right? If you're like a top CEO, there's almost this second layer where you don't want to sit around talking about your feelings too much because that is seen as being disempowering um, or that is seen as not being particularly strong. So I felt that there were some raw truths of this thing that were very hard to get to. Uh, And I do think the research is helpful, right? All the social science research, but I also think the social science research hems you in because First of all, there's there's only so much of it. They choose how they bifurcate their research. They're very often working with small pools of people. And so it's helpful because it gives you ways to illustrate things that are happening and make things, you know, 
allows you to help un understand them is not being purely anecdotal. But um, I felt that going through this process, I was not clear at all. I was like hacking my way through a jungle and it was only like my editor was like, you're going to have to like submit it now. I know the deadline has passed and you have not like, there was only then that I was like, took my machete and got through to the end. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think what I struggled with was it would have been easy to write an easier book, which was like ability is bad. Forget about it. Here's how you forget about it. And what I ran into was like, it's just not that simple. And the ways around it are not that simple. And, um, and really allowing myself to sit in the complexity of those things and, and think really honestly, the number one gut check I wanted to, to do is like, is this advice useful? Is it practical? And can it be easily applied? Um, because there's just like a lot of bad advice out there, especially for women. And so much of the advice for women relies on this idea that we as individuals can fix everything. We can fix our hair and our makeup and our employment situation and our marriage and our children, everything. We just have the life of our dreams if only we show up enough um, with no regard to the systems and structures that are dictating the terms. Wow. That is very powerful what you're saying. And I can't think of a woman who won't relate to it. Um, I, I actually ran into friends and particularly my Watergate colleagues who said, you're sharing too much. Don't do it. it. It will diminish your power to have shared the personal side. And I, it, it may be my age that I just felt like it was true and authentic and that I had to do it. But um, I think what you're saying is very powerful. Um, and it sounds like you learned a lot in writing it about yourself. You said you learned how important it was to you and how hard it is to overcome. But um, did you see anything in your research that showed that depending on who the judged is, if it's a man or a woman and who the judger is, that the standard of judgment differs, that it's, it's different for a man judging a woman than a woman judging a woman and, and vice versa? You know, I didn't see a ton of that to be completely honest that like most of these things were and again you're beholden to the social science research that's out there um but yeah no i i didn't see as much of that and it's a question that comes up a lot right like this is this is not just about men upholding a standard that forces women into these traps. It's about people of all genders upholding these standards that force all of us into the trap. And as much as I'm looking at it through the lens of women, we don't let men show up in their entirety. I think there's one of the foils for men is if you're a man and you cry at the office, that's an immediate demerit. It's an immediate demerit where you are not seen as being a strong and commanding leader as we expect men to be. So I do think we exist, allow men to exist in a slightly broader landscape of leadership, but it's still pretty hemmed in. It's still pretty predetermined. Um, and that I think like that is the benefit for all of us if we begin to expand these definitions. Yeah, and, and it's important for men to read your book and to understand uh, the emotional side of likability and for men to be as open to 
wanting to be liked as women are. Um, but you and you talk about likability in a variety of contexts. Um, I want to focus mostly on the workplace uh, context where an employee's skills and knowledge and competence are subject to judgment of others, but it goes through a lens of likability. And as you said, um, things that a woman does to be likable may hurt being viewed as competent. If a man hugs or you know comes up to somebody and says, hi, how are you, slaps him on the back, and it's the recipient is a man, it's perceived as a likable, friendly thing. If he does that in today's world to a woman, that's not how it's viewed. And yet there are people who are touchy-feely people, and there are people who are, uh, stay away, I, I need my physical distance. And for them to feel, you know, for someone who is a touchy-feely person and thinks that that's what makes them likable, how do they... Um, how do they cut that off so that they can be likable but not violate the current rules? This question didn't come up so specifically for me, so I'm going to zoom out a little bit, and I think it will will connect back, which is, I think the big question is, is this is the workplace an environment where people feel safe enough to say, hey, the way that you're acting isn't working for me? Um, and where there is the space and the confidence to do that. I think so often when we're talking about workplaces where you have, for example, a screamer and a yeller comes up a lot, someone who uses foul language. It's not just that the person does that. It's that the office or the workplace has been built around that person to protect that person and not to protect the other workers and not to give them sort of the space to say, this behavior makes it harder for me to do my job. This behavior doesn't bring up the best results. Um, that I think is where you want to get where the, the, and that the message from leadership is we are looking at this as a composite. We're looking at this as an environment and not an environment where everyone, you know, there, there's not one sun that everyone else circles around. Mm-hmm. that we're sort of all being held as as valuable. Um, but I do think that it is, we have to acknowledge that we are in a moment of cultural flux um, and that that is something that, you know, this, the latest rise of Me Too has exposed, which is the old rules don't apply and the new rules are still very much being written. And I don't have answers so much as I have a lot of questions about who is writing those rules, um, whose voice is going to be included as those rules are decided, who those rules then apply to. And which you'll appreciate as a as a litigator, Jill, which is like, how often are those rules being written to limit exposure and liability? And how often are they being re- written to really create a dynamic and safe, creative workplace? Mm-hmm. So you also mentioned um, a sense of responsibility uh, that women take on is I need to fix this and it's in my power. It's my responsibility to fix it. Um, is that part of their likability trap or is that a separate issue, do you think? It's a great question. Um, I think it can manifest differently 
for different people. I think though, that what has happened because of so much of the lady in the workplace literature, so much of it goes back to this question of how a woman can survive in the workplace. So a lot of it is very tactical, right? It's about if you're going to ask for a raise, know that you're up against this, but if you smile and you frame it in the context of the team rather than the context of yourself, then you'll be 50% more likely to get that. And it's like, that's fine because there are going to be a lot of women, even of Victor's generation who are just going to have to like survive on their way to the top, but all, but that framework is not going to allow women or anyone else to thrive, right? All it's helping you do is move through awkward situation, awkward situation, as opposed to actually really grappling with it to be like, what would we have to do institutionally to make it such that raises were not, um, complicated by these layers of biases, right? What would we have to do to strip that out of our hiring practices? Like that is the shift that I want to make to look at the institutional rather than the individual. It plays on politics too. Yeah, for sure. So do you think likability is one of the factors that holds women back from advancing in a job? And, And does it apply at all to male advancement? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think what we know about men in politics is in some ways the we know the most about it because it's where people literally talk about likability and where it gets pulled and assessed, and there are numerical values that we can add. And what we know, or at least what we knew prior to this election, was voters do care about a male candidate's likability. But as long as they believe that that man is competent, they will vote for him even if they don't like him. And what we see with women is that women have to clear both hurdles as a candidate. They have to be likable and they have to be competent. And I would argue that there's really this third hurdle, which is by being super competent, right? By being the smartest and the best and the most prepared, we often ding women in the likability category for being that person. Um, so they're they're figuring out how to be both at the same time. All that research is done for women in politics. I think it applies to women in offices yeah. in any right in any in any workplace, which is um, yes, it impacts men and women, but I think it disproportionately impacts women. And I think it is very often the way in which people get by with saying, you know, there's something about her that just isn't there. You know, there's just something. It's a, it was like, it's not, well, not that woman, just another. It's not because she's a woman. It's like, well, I, you, I can't seem to find a woman you don't feel that way about. So clearly her gender has to have something to do with it. And I should say, you know, gender is one piece of this, but it comes up with race very frequently. I think the same, it gets used as the same sort of cover for bias. So you know, for Latinas like myself, this expectation that we're either going to be meek and humble, so not really leadership material, or we're going to be Sofia Vergara on Modern Family, where we're very passionate, but people don't take us seriously. Um, for Black women, being assertive, being read as being angry, angry is one of um, the 
biggest, I mean, biggest and quickest demerits, right? If a woman express, a woman of any race expresses anger in the workplace, it immediately means that there is something wrong with her. That is how it is interpreted. Um, and that she then doesn't have the capacity to be a leader. And for Asian American men and women, there's an expectation that they'll be docile. And so there's all this research about how when Asian Americans, men and women, show up to lead a team, try to assert themselves on a team. There's a real rebuke to that because there are so many people who, who expect Asian and Asian Americans to be great worker bees, but never the queen bee. And so, so I think it shows up for a variety of people in a variety of ways. And what I think is most nefarious about it is that it seems perfectly socially passable to be like, well, I just don't like that person or I just don't think they have it without really interrogating what it is that you mean when you say that. It's a very interesting answer. And I hope that everyone listening realizes that internally they have to also accept that there are certain ways to advance and that they can't fall into that stereotype um, in either judging someone or in judging themselves. And I will say, Jill, like I'm a very empathetic person. I pride myself on my empathy. My becoming a mother now twice over really opened my eyes to the limits of our own empathy that I thought I understood what working parents were up against. And it wasn't until I became a working parent myself that I was able to fully recognize the biases that I had had. And like, in that show up in subtle ways, right? That you see someone walk out at 4.45 to go pick up their kid. And my first thought was like, well, I wish I could leave at 4.45 as opposed to realizing that child's school is probably done at 2.30. So they've already been in aftercare or this parent has coordinated care for them. They're gonna have to go home, make them dinner, give them a bath, put them to bed. And then they're gonna have to do the hour of work. I, did, I mean, I just, I couldn't fully imagine it. And I, I, I share that um, limitation on my part to say that even those of us who think we're being really good about interrogating our own biases can do better. Um, and can always sort of be honest about where we may not be able to fully appreciate the experience of another. And speaking of biases, something that I'm always interested about is kind of what happens when like men judge other women. And there's been a ton of social research out there that says like when we judge other people and maybe women specifically, it's often like a direct reflection of our own insecurities. Do you think women who, you know, may possess those strong characteristics may be judged harsher from men for traits like likability because men may just be a little bit insecure in that sense? I think it is more that so much of this is so subjective, right? So like one person's assertive is another person's warm and one person's warm is another person's assertive. Um, and so there, I think of it in terms of language, right? Like here's the thing that I learned that I've been doing that I've tried to stop doing, which is calling women helpful. I always thought that was like a compliment, great word. Um, but part of what happens when you call a woman helpful is that it often relegates her to being a helper. That if I say, you know, Jill was really helpful to me, it's like, well, did Jill get everybody coffee for the meeting? Did Jill <laughs> collate the copies? Or did Jill um, reach out to all the principals and coordinate the convening? Because those are weighted incredibly right. differently. But the bias that men and women both have is that when they hear a woman was helpful, they imagine that it is a very sort of junior 
task. Um, and so learning to be really, really explicit, right? This is what she ran the regression analysis. You know, she, um, she did all of the primary research, whatever it is, just like naming what it is. Even something like, you know, is um, Victor indecisive or is Victor deliberate? Because I want to have everyone on my team be deliberate about the decisions they make. I don't want anyone on my team to be indecisive. It's really the same quality framed up a different way. And that can have huge consequences for a person's career. And it also is a way in which we can be allies to each other without it becoming like a big to-do, right? That just in passing, if all of a sudden Jill was like, I don't know, Victor's being really indecisive. I say, well, is he being indecisive or is he being deliberate? And she may say, no, he's being indecisive. Like he's refusing to make this choice. And then I can say, can you give me an example of how what's showing up for you as indecision is impacting the results of his work. And she may be able to say it. She may be able to say, yeah, we needed to make a choice on this presentation on Tuesday. He, he dragged his feet on it until Thursday and then we were late getting it to the client. Like, okay, now that's something that you can actually begin to grapple with, to work with, to improve. Um, and that is again, like where I think you want these conversations to go. For sure. And in a sense, if I'm understanding you correctly, is it kind of moving from like the abstract idea of likability into more, kind of more specific reasons and giving that feedback to people instead of just saying, you know, I don't think you're likable? Yeah, it's also about externalizing this question. So something that I watched happen during this last election that I thought was extraordinarily powerful was when they were going through, um, you know, the process of Joe Biden picking a vice president. And there were all these names that were being floated. And ordinarily, as you both know, what will happen is anyone whose name is in the ether, they will completely demure in an interview. They'd be like, oh, I, like, I didn't even know, like, I don't have Google alerts set for myself. And then, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, it's, it is that person's choice and I would be honored to serve. This year, and I believe it was Stacey Abrams who led the charge on this. Um, so for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to give her credit where she said, yes, I want it. And yes, let me tell you why I would be the best candidate for it. Mm -hmm. And yes, no matter who he chooses, I will get on board with it. But like, this is my case for myself. And what was so powerful to me was that then all of these women started doing it. Kamala Harris did it. Val Demings did it. Like it, it became not a thing then that made any one of them different. There was real unity in all of their doing it. And in some ways it made it less interesting for those of us who do analysis to talk about because it wasn't a point of differentiation. It was just all of a sudden they had changed the standard and the norm. And I think we can do that too in workplaces, right? Like if every woman is asking for a stretch assignment, then it doesn't make the one woman who's doing it strange or different or a standout. It just becomes the norm. And to me, like that is a very powerful act of solidarity that can be replicated wherever it is that you work. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things you talk about in the book that I found fascinating was what you call the Goldilocks conundrum. And sort of, you know, where Goldilocks says, oh, this one is just right. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. And can you uh, share a little bit more about that? And uh, I think it'll resonate with very many women for sure. I, I will share, but I have to tell you, Jill Weinbanks, you are sort of the perfect bowl of porridge. Like this whole <laughs> thing is predicated on this idea of uh, of trying to be 
as warm as you are strong as a person. And this really applies to everyone. Like if you've ever taken a communications 101 class, I'm always in awe of your um, posture because they'll tell you like, you want to sit up very straight. You want to have square shoulders. You don't want to be tilting your head because all of those things, you know, they, they show strength, but then you smile and there's the warmth, right? So, um, Everybody, like any master communicator is trying to just hit the mark on being as strong as they are warm. What is challenging for women is that as we dial up one, there's a perception that the other dials down, right? So the more strength we come in with, the more other people uh, perceive us as not being as warm or as likable as they might want. If we're really warm, asking everyone how their summer vacation was and, you know, chit-chatty, then it's like, people might be like, I love her, but like, I don't actually take her seriously. And that is, that is the conundrum. How I, I think of it like, um, what's it called at a playground, the, um, a seesaw. Yeah. But as you know, as one side goes up, the other side goes down and that that is part of what women are constantly negotiating is this question of how to show up as a person who is strong and assertive and seen as competent in their role, but while also maintaining that element of warmth. And there are a lot of things that play with that. So for example, motherhood plays with that. Motherhood plays with that notion in a way that fatherhood doesn't. Um, That when you become a mother, it almost like puts all of the perceived feminine characteristics on blast, it hypes it up so that people sort of begin by perceiving you as warm and then you have to also show them that you are strong or show them that you're competent and still committed to your work. So there was a great study, and by great I mean mind-blowing, where they had sort of both a mom and a dad at work and they'd get a call from their kid's school saying that there was some type of crisis. At the same time at work, they're crashing on a very high level assignment. And the question was, would the person run out the door to be with their child or would they stay and finish the project? When mom ran out the door to be with her child, people were like, she's a great mom, but she might not be the best team member. When she stayed, people were like, she's a great team member, but what kind of monster mom is she that she didn't go pick up her kid at daycare? And what is interesting to me is that didn't apply to the dads. When the dads went to go get their kid, people were like, he is an incredible dad. And they didn't make any evaluation of his work predicated on that. And when he stayed and worked, people thought that was also normal, right? In part, because there's probably the expectation that there is a primary caretaker, whether it is a mom, woman, a partner, who's going to go pick up the kid. And so there was just a different set of expectations for the two. And that is like, that is almost more interesting to me than it's like, well, what would happen if it were just the same expectation across the board? If the dads were penalized the way the moms were, if there were just no penalty for anyone. Fascinating study. I agree with you. That is a really important perception. And I think women do consider how they speak. You know, if they speak up assertively, that's good. But if they don't speak up assertively, they're just ignored. But that Wait, can I ask you, Jill? Though, like, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious for you how this has all showed up in in your own life because you do, to me, who who like you and I, have, we've seen been in person maybe once together pre pandemic. I don't know if you remember you and I both had on black and white polka dot dresses, and- <laughs> which I am all for. <laughs> Very exciting, um, and. 
But otherwise, I really, I, I sort of consume you through my television, right? <laughs> and my perception of you is that, again, you are very strong and you are very warm. And I wonder how much of that is sort of who you were out the womb and how much of that is a learned and a practiced behavior. And if you feel that you can let that down ever. Um, I think it is partly a learned behavior um, and some of it is thought out. Um, this question, Ms. became a, a title while I was very, very new in the law practice. And I thought, if I called myself Ms. to the jury, they're going to think I'm an uppity feminist and they're not going to like me. And so I have to call myself Mrs. So there are things that I do that aren't authentic. I would have chosen the title Ms. Um, for a, a thousand reasons, but I didn't because I saw my goal as winning cases and being trusted by the jury. And to be trusted by the jury, I had to stop what I called sexist trial tactics where, you know, a, a defense lawyer would sort of take me by the elbow to help me up to the bench for a bench conference. I didn't need help. He was trying to show that I was less um, powerful, less trustworthy than he was to the jury. You can't let him do that. On the other hand, if you punch him in the ribs, the jury's going to not like you and not trust you either. So it, I am always looking for the right balance. I, I am friendly and I have never not been, even as a boss, uh, and I've supervised thousands of people at a time. Um, I care about the people who work for me and I will ask them personal questions um, in an appropriate situation, not probing them. But if someone comes, I, people will come to me for advice that they would not come to a man. And I don't say, I'm your boss, go away. So there is, I think, I think there has to be some thought given to it. Um, and I, I think ambitious women, as you pointed out, are less liked. Um, and you have to, you know, accept that you may be slightly less well-liked if you want to do your job. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it is, it's a, a tricky balance to be heard and not ignored, but not to be perceived as inappropriately assertive. Okay, so we we talked about likability in the workforce, and we talked a little bit about how it plays in politics. But I just want to kind of dive deeper into that political arena because it is so relevant. And you know, in your book, you write how female candidates have to cross you know these two bars, and you mentioned it on the podcast a little bit beforehand. Um, to be even within the realm of possibilities of being elected, you know, they have to be competent and they have to be well liked. On the other hand, men just have to be competent. Um, what do you think it will take to get people to vote for women for their competency rather than their likability and their competency? I think we're beginning to see it. I mean, I think the fact that there were multiple women on the Democratic presidential debate stage was a, a huge step in the right direction in the sense that when you have one woman, it is as though like we will judge all women through the lens of this one candidate where having multiple women on the stage said there's more than one way to do this. There's more than one way to dress and do this. There's more than one way to speak and do this. There's more one than one way to use your hands. There are even different issue priorities. 
Um, and so I thought it was extraordinarily important that there were a multitude of women on that stage. I think the fact that Kamala Harris has been elected vice president will begin to change the contours of of who we see as a leader um, and who we think is capable of doing it. Um, but I think that's it. I mean, I think it's just like, it has, people have to keep doing it, keep running. Um, I think a lot of the responsibility comes on the part of those of us in the media and how we talk about these candidates um, and how we frame up their competencies um, and, and always seeing that competency as an asset. Um, but that's that to me is it across the board is you just have to see it. And once you see it, it becomes it begins to shift what the norm is. Mm-hmm. There was like a big year post Trump where there were like women like nursing in campaign ads. Like it was like, you know, things swung so strongly in the other direction of women really like celebrating um, the multidimensionality of being women. And again, I think that just like, it made some of that stuff more normal. Mm -hmm. I also want to say we have a very long way to go. Like there is still so much work to do. And I, and, you know, one of the examples I think of is, is black women inside of the democratic party. And the argument that a lot of black women organizers have made, which is that if you wanna see more black women in Congress, then you are going to have to do things like clear primary fields in order to make sure that a black woman is the candidate that you are left with at the end of that primary. So what that is, is saying like institutionally, if you're saying this is a priority as a party, then you have to do what you might consider difficult or uncomfortable things in order to actually deliver that, right? That it's like, it's not enough to be like, we're gonna give you a class on campaign fundraising. Like we're gonna give you one hour of media training. So many of those things play on them. They're important, but they're still margins when there are institutions that can make decisions like, no, we're gonna clear the field for this one person. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important for institutions to also have a role in kind of reforming that culture. And um, when, one of the things that you said really um, brought me back to a conversation that we had with um, Valerie Jarrett, and she worked in the Obama administration. Something that she did that was so um, that that really gave rise to woman empowerment in the White House was she, I think, started um, this this thing where Obama wouldn't call on women to you know speak, and then once I think Valerie Jarrett or maybe it was Tina T. Chen kind of raised their hand during a meeting, and Obama started calling on more women. So I think it's that one word that you said, solidarity, and kind of giving rise to more woman empowerment. Once one woman does it, gives you know rec- more recognition for other women to be able to do that. And I think that's really important and something that my generation will definitely find helpful. Um, and one other thing that I want to ask you about is kind of what factor cultures play into the importance of likability. Um, because in countries like Germany or New Zealand and Britain, they're all comfortable with a woman in a position of power. What do you think makes the United States so different? I would put an asterisk next to that, which is to say that, yes, there have been women elected heads of state that is a huge leap beyond where the U.S. is. I would still look critically at the way that, you know, Angela Merkel or um, who am I think Margaret Thatcher, like the way that they have been described um, the way in which they, you know, people have played up their strength to the detriment of their warmth, all of these things still play out. I think what you were saying that was they actually have elected women to to run their countries. Um, And and I think, again, 
a lot of that, so much of it is cultural. And then a lot of it is institutional, right? Like a lot of it is about who has access to the capital that is necessary to run the way that we currently structure US elections, how much of it is in media and the way that media frames up these. I mean, I think there were a lot of lessons learned from the way that Hillary Clinton was treated in 2008. And then I think there was a different set of lessons that were learned from the way she was treated in 2016. Um, and some of it is absolutely going to have to be culture shift. Like I think about this a lot, Victor, in the context of, of my having two young girls, my two girls are under four. And um, people will often ask me like, why didn't you do this as a parenting book? And I'm like, well, I don't know anything about parenting. Like I had my children, I was, I was having this book, but also, because I can empower my girls to be exactly who they are. I have, I have the type of girls who like climb to the top of every playground apparatus. They are bold. They ask for what they want. And I know that at some point I will release them into a world that where all of those things may not be celebrated. And so I am less interested in quote unquote empowering my girls than I am in shifting the academic landscape they live in, the extracurricular landscape they live in, the actual literal neighborhood and community they live in to celebrate women who choose to show up in that way. And so, yes, I think like a lot of it is culture shift, but I also think some of it is, is institutional. Who has an email list that they can, you know, call from and run from? Um, you know, who's, when we say you need experience, what experience qualifies as enough experience? Um, so yeah, I think it's, but I also think that there's like now a, a deep, deep bench of women. Um, and I think that that is also going to, to change things. So let's follow up on that institutional and organizational uh, change that we need. What can organizations, maybe particularly workplaces, do to improve um, how women are perceived and their likability to create a culture that allows for a gender-neutral standard of judgment, both in the feedback that they get as part of their evaluation, but also in evaluating who gets the next big assignment? Right. the, there has to be buy-in from the very top. If there's not buy-in from the very top, then we're just like having like nice hand-holding, braiding each other hair sessions. Nobody needs that. Like nobody has time for that. So there has to be real, real, real buy-in at the top. That is one of the things I've seen again and again. And then as a manager, you want to be creating psychological safety on your teams. There were all, all this great research. Google looked at their highest performing teams. What was the one commonality of the team psychological safety? And sometimes it is the most obvious behaviors, Jill, like proactively going around a table at a meeting and asking everyone for their input, mm-hmm. right? Like not just assuming that the fact that you say like anybody have anything they want to add that everyone like will feel as though they can, that sometimes you need to create that space for people. I also think we can each in our own lives take on the role of sponsorship. You know, mentorship always felt like it was the hottest ticket in town. 
mentors are incredible. They can give you advice. They can give you guidance. I'm talking sponsorship wise about someone who can really open doors for you. Someone who has a big Rolodex is willing to use it for you. If you're interested in this concept, Sylvia Ann Hewlett wrote a great book about this, sort of the godmother of this concept, but it's, it's really about delivering. Like there, there is a fundamental difference between my, you know, Victor, you and I having a, a session where, you know, for 15 minutes, I give you some advice and me calling five people who might be useful to you and saying, I have someone, he's going to graduate. I think you should hire him. Here's his CV. Here's what I think. The, one thing helps, one thing propels a career. Mm-hmm. And we need to be doing more of that latter piece for more people. Yeah. This mentorship is something that Jill has taught me a lot about and something that we definitely want to have on our podcast once just to dedicate something on mentorship because it is so important, as you say. Um, but you know, this has been such a fascinating conversation, so helpful for so many women. I think a lot of women will uh, reson- will find this conversation um, uh, uh, relatable to them. And I'm wondering for, you know, for the last question of this podcast, what advice would you have for young women um, in my generation, kind of in the throes of job hunting or adjusting to the workforce um, during this pandemic? Uh, Victor, thank you for reminding me that I am old since you felt the need to distinguish. <laughs> uh, I, I, I kid, I kid. Um, um, He's 18 years old. I know. I, I Like I am old comparatively. Um, so I think part of what Part of the advice I would give, not even connected to likability, is that I think so many of us think about our areas of interest and allow that to drive our professional choices without a lot of thought to what impact do I want to have? And what is it that I want to actually do every day? Like, do I want to be with people or do I want to be in a room with boxes and documents? Um, Do I want it to have a creative element to it or am I happy living a purely analytical life? Like in some ways, I think those questions can start to build some contours around what it is you, you want to do. And like, there are, I mean, I grew up in an immigrant community. My dad is first generation American. There was still some of that, like, expectation of you'll become a doctor or a lawyer and like we're not really sure what other options there are in the world like it's always intriguing like this idea that now there's so many entrepreneurs of course like growing up I knew people who were small business owners but like I didn't think of anyone in my life as an entrepreneur and so I just I always wish that I would have been more inquisitive about what else was out there you've heard me make this joke before Jill like I took the LSAT because that was you know what I thought I didn't, I, I didn't even know that there were other options. And then once I started looking at other options, it like worlds opened up. There were all of these, these other ways to apply both the skills I had and the passions I had. Um, and so I think that is one sort of being really figuring out what it is you want and giving yourself some grace as you figure that out. Um, but then also where this question shows up for for women is that like a lot of this is really subjective and it's why you know when you have someone who can make a direct connection sometimes they can make the best case um for for you that anyone can now that doesn't mean being a person who is connected because 
not everyone has a natural sort of universe of connections, but something I see a lot, and Daniela Pierre Bravo, who's one of our colleagues at MSNBC, she's a booking producer on Morning Joe, and she wrote a great book um, with Mika Brzezinski about this, is like, you can reach out to people. And if you are very specific with people about why it is that you are reaching out and what it is that you are hoping to garner from that contact, that can actually open a world of, of opportunities. So like if I get a LinkedIn note that's like, hey, Lisa, you work at NBC, I'd like to work at NBC, call me. I'm not gonna call you. <laughs> but if you say, hey, I am an admirer of your work. I watch your show every night from six to eight. Here are the things that I like about it. I'm particularly a fan of this guest. I'm a student with a background in journalism and in politics. I'm trying to figure out how to get my foot in the door. I will absolutely write you back. Like I will write you back and I will try to, and then you say, I am hoping to get an entry level job at NBC. Here are three postings I saw. Do you know, like help me help you put as much information as in front of me as possible to create a connection between us. And then to tell me how I can be helpful. Like, I don't have a lot of time. I'm a working mother in quarantine, like time is limited. But if you tell me what I can do to help you, then I will always want to do that. And I think that there are a lot of people who share that ethos. And I think even if you didn't grow up in a, in a community or family where you have connections that are now relevant to you, you can create those connections on your own um, if you are dedicated and savvy about it. Wow. Well, that was the perfect way to end this podcast and something that I know that my generation will definitely find helpful. Um, Stop saying that, Victor. <laughs> all women. All... <laughs> it's amazing how often he and I from very different generations do share the same views. And I have to say that I, I know that Victor has heard this from me about be specific in networking. Yeah. Don't come and say, I'd like to brainstorm with you come and say, I see that you're on the board of X organization. I would love to work there. Can you introduce me to someone at that organization? And here's why I want to work there. If you help the person to help you, strangers will help you. And so that is, that's just the best advice you just gave for sure. All right. Well, this was a wonderful conversation and thank you so much for being on. Um, and especially on this Women's History Month. Yes. I love this pairing. Me too. <laughs> Dynamic <laughs> duo. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.